I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. What a month it's been for Europe. If you believe President Putin at the St. Petersburg Forum, a peace was acknowledged between Ukraine and Russia in Turkey and betrayed by NATO nations in spring of 2022. Countless young people have been killed in the war raging in Europe since that betrayal. Reportedly, it was the British in the shape of disgraced ex-PM Boris Johnson who was first dispatched to Kiev to order Zelensky to keep the war going. Now, we've got to U.S. President Biden claiming the threat of a nuclear strike is real. Well, representing the U.K. in Moscow for Tony Blair's government after he'd invaded Iraq with Sir Tony Brenton, the former British ambassador, joins me now from Carcassonne in a country, France, reputedly setting its sights on joining BRICS or the grouping including Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. So, Tony, welcome back to uh, the show. On Saturday, we had Sergei Karaganov on the show, former Putin administration advisor, chair of the Russian Council on Foreign and Defense Policy. He considers that even a crushing Russian victory in Ukraine is not enough. Nuclear missiles may be required. I mean, how did we get to this? Over the years, you've come on going underground. We began with you, I think, when you first appeared on this show, talking about closer business ties, investment uh, opportunities and synergies between Britain and Russia. What, what's happened? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a tragedy, really, and there have been mistakes on all sides. I think we in the West did not pay enough attention to Russia's security concerns, and in particular about Russia's con concerns with um, the expansion of NATO and the possibility of Ukraine joining it. I think, finally, however, Russia has slipped up very, very badly in launching this criminal and actually self-destructive war, which has left us all complete loggerheads I hope, heading now toward, towards some sort of negotiated outcome. But at the moment, as you've already said, lots of physical destruction, lots of people being killed. And I'm appalled. I, I'm a friend of Russia. Um, I was very keen. I worked very hard was I, when I was ambassador to try and strengthen relations between our two countries to see what has happened. I mean, I actually have something here from what you said to a parliamentary committee to Tom Tugendhat, now British security uh, minister. You said the Russians have been very clear from the very beginning what they want as regards Ukraine. They want two things. First, no route into NATO. You said the West mistook it. You told them that. And as for uh, your uh, arguments against Russia's response to what they saw as uh, the building up of armaments before February 22nd of last year, I mean, people are tweeting against you as a Kremlin uh, mouthpiece. I mean, someone from the Center for Institute's uh, Studies in Lisbon said, surprised to hear the BBC platform the deranged pro-Kremlin apologist Tony Brenton. Is that the level of debate going on in well, NATO no, no. countries? I mean, no, there's a, there's, a, there's a real debate going on in, in the UK, as to some extent there is now in, in, in Russia. Um, I am used to being told by both sides that I'm an apologist for the other side. As I say, I'm... But wait, wait, you're a British diplomat. <laughs> Clearly you're British not diplomat. working for the Kremlin. So my, my, my concern, yeah, no, but my concern is therefore for British interests. And I strongly believed, and still to some extent believe, that finally British interests are, are well served by a Russia which is integrated into Europe in some, in some sense, whose security concerns are alleviated. Um, and, um, you know, we can get back to the relatively good neighbourly policies that we had actually when I was ambassador. Unfortunately, this war makes that a pretty remote prospect for the future. Well, people are dying, as I said earlier on. And what, what is the mood in that country if someone like you is being called that 
and uh, the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, after that uh, drone attack on the Kremlin, said Ukraine has the legitimate right to defend itself beyond its borders with British weaponry. Presumably. Well, first of all, in, in international law, he's right. Um, and it is unsurprising to my eye that Ukraine is launching the, these raids. I mean, I thought that for a while the Americans were discouraging them from doing so, but it's pretty clear that if they are discouraging them, they're not doing it very effectively. The point is that Russia has launched a barbaric war in Ukraine against the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian government sees itself as fighting for its life. And the West, and I think this is important that in Russia this is understood, the West stands very firmly behind the Ukrainians. They see, I mean, we in the UK, we have a sort of a Churchillian instinct, if I can put it that way. Our memory of, of an innocent country finding itself under massive bombardment and deeply threatened is us threatened by the Nazis in 1939. And we have a feeling of Ukraine in a similar situation, deserving all support we can give it. Yeah, I mean, Churchill fought the Banderites in Eastern Ukraine, though, obviously. So the way most of the world see it, I mean, you're calling it the West, the Russians call it the West as well. I sometimes wonder, because why did envoys at the United Nations representing most of humanity fail to uh, condemn the invasion the way you are uh, right now? In fact, uh, the rest of the world is uh, ramping up economic growth and doing deals with Russia and China clearly uh, and India uh, through deals financing the war in a way. Well, you're right that the emergence of the so-called Global South, countries which prefer not to take either side in this, in this very bitter conflict, has been a bit of a surprise, I think, to us and to you. But if you look at the big members of the Global South, if you look at India and you look at China, you look at two countries which, yes, they're not going to take a position on how they want to see the war go out, but they're very clear that, for example, the nuclear issue, which I assume we're coming to, that they are dead against the use of nuclear weapons by Russia, and that they are very keen to see Russia getting into negotiations with Ukraine and with the West to bring the war to an end. You said it's barbaric. So what, I mean, you've said previously again to that committee, I think you said it on our show before, that Putin was risk averse. You don't think the yeah. uh, Newland, uh, Victoria Newland, who admitted bio-warfare labs in Ukraine, you don't believe that, uh, uh, the massive armaments coming in there, British soldiers there in Ukraine. What were they all doing? You think Putin should have just sat there after oh, 14,000 people were killed in, in Donetsk and Luhansk and just let it go on, knowing, as we do now, and I don't know whether it's a surprise to you, when Angela Merkel said that basically Putin was hoodwinked by Minsk. I, well, as I've said, um, the war is the war. You, Russia has its perception of the war. Um, fed by Russian official media and, and, and other sources. The perception in the West is very much, as I've said, of a big, heavily armed superpower, Russia, launching an attack on an unaggressive, rather small... No, I understand that, Sir Tony, but what do you think? Well, I, well, I know that's, that's a precise description of the situation. I, I think that there were mistakes on both sides which led us here, but I think that the final criminal act was that of the Kremlin in launching the war. And um, you've said, and I've said, I don't, I, you've referred to my, my, my view that Putin uh, is, is risk averse, um, which refers back to a time just after I'd been ambassador. So we're back in the 20, 2008, 2010 era. 
Nobody believed that Russia was going to do what it had done. Um, and there was real prospects, I mean, it's going to be very difficult, of finding a way threading through this agreement to reaching some sort of mutual understanding. It's worth recalling that back then, there was no way that Ukraine was going to get into NATO in the foreseeable future, because um, it was contested territory between, between Russia and, and Ukraine. We're now in a situation where, first of all, this, this very nasty war is underway. And secondly, uh, Russia has already lost out very badly. A number of neutrals, Sweden and Finland in particular, have joined or are joining NATO. NATO is talking actively today about the likelihood of Ukraine joining. Um, Russia, in its attempt to prevent that, has actually brought the prospect closer. It's a disaster. And we need to find a way back to a position where, first of all, the two sides talk to each other. And secondly, we can find, a, first of all, a way of guaranteeing, guaranteeing Ukraine's security, which has been what, what's been most directly attacked. But secondly, in the hope of a longer peace, also finding a way of uh, demonstrating to Russia that its security is not threatened either. You see, arguably, most of the world doesn't think like that. It thinks, after Angela Merkel said that the Minsk Accords, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2202, I don't know what you think uh, about the fact that she said it was just a way of uh, giving time for NATO countries to fill the weapons there to be able to, uh, I don't know what, I mean, commit genocide, a complete uh, genocide in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, the fact is that most of them uh, think, well, you know, Western Europe is a declining region economically in any case. And uh, whether Finland and Sweden join, who cares? These, this entire region is declining economically in terms of its power, and the rest of the world is moving on. That's perhaps why they remain uh, neutral in, in great part. I mean, didn't the Minsk, uh, as I say, ratified at the UN Security Council resolution revelations not shock you and make you realize Putin had no alternative, given that he was believing something for years that wasn't true? This was actually just no, a I, subterfuge. And the Minsk Accords, did get stuck very early on. I don't know what quotation you're citing from Angela Merkel, but the Germans did work quite hard at getting them. Angela Merkel said it was just a means of, uh, uh, it was a delaying tactic. Uh, as it, was regards... a way of, it was a way of diffusing what at the time looked like a very nasty civil war in Ukraine, in, in, in the East there, and giving an opportunity for the two sides to find a way out. Now, unfortunately, it got completely stuck and if I had to, I, I would blame the Ukrainians more than the Russians for the failure that, there. Nevertheless, um, it got stuck, and we were on, sitting on the edge of a volcano, really, which still does not justify what Russia did in, um, in February uh, last year. doesn't justify it. Um, okay, well, obviously, you know, that's not the way Russia would say it, and uh, you, you're blaming the Ukrainians there. Isn't that unfair? Because... Zelensky, a peace candidate in Kiev, then under the yes. tutelage perhaps of this uh, oligarch Kolomoisky who has gone against, isn't it a fact that it was already a de facto kind of NATO colony from the phone call we have on YouTube? People can watch it of Victoria Newland choosing who are the forces that run Ukraine. This was the bulwark against that was to be used against Russia. Uh, whereas diplomats oh, I, like I, yourself, Bill Burns, at the, now at the CIA, were saying, oh, this is what Russia doesn't want, blah, blah, blah. There were other forces with Blinken and Newland and Sullivan and so on who wanted this as a showdown to get Russia back into the Yeltsin-era fold of just being ordered around. That's presumably what the Russians think and the rest of the world thinks. 
Well, no. Well, I certainly don't think it, and I don't think the rest of the world does either. There were genuine attempts to resolve the differences from Minsk and from there on. What made them all much harder was Russia's seizure of, of Crimea um, in 2014, by which time, of course, I was no longer ambassador, no longer directly involved. And at that point, a Ukraine, which had been a deeply split country, split between a sort of pro-Russian half and a pro-Western half, you find that the pro-Russian half switches over pretty dramatically to support for a united, independent Ukraine. And when the Russian troops went in there in February 2022, in the expectation of pretty girls with flowers welcoming them in, they found themselves fighting a pretty united nation against them. And we in the West believe that that united nation has the right to its independence, has the right to its support. We are supplying them with arms and will continue to do so. And we think the right outcome from this has to be a Ukraine that survives and finds a peaceful relationship with Russia. And the most likely way of getting to that is for them to achieve significant military progress and to regain a significant amount of the territory which Russia currently occupies. So, Tony Brenton, I'll stop you there. More from the former UK ambassador to Russia after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the former UK ambassador to Russia, Sir Tony Brenton. You said that Russia expected a quick victory. We now know that Putin said at St. Petersburg there was a peace deal initial, therefore they withdrew from Kiev. Um, isn't the point about Ukraine, as far as Russia is concerned, about finishing its neoliberal experiment? Uh, you yourself have talked about how Putin wanted to join NATO at, at one point. It's over. That experiment is over. It's not even about Donetsk and Luhansk and all those people who were being killed with NATO nation weapons since 2014 in the coup in Kiev. This is about something different. And I have to ask, therefore, is Britain now at war with Russia? Because Britain always no, says it not. isn't. No, we aren't, and NATO isn't. Why are there 50 soldiers there? No, we have no, Jack Taxera going to prison. We have a U.S. whistleblower for the Pentagon whistleblower. He's just gone to jail, hasn't he? He's been indicted at a grand jury uh, with leaks from the Pentagon saying British soldiers in Ukraine fighting the Russians. No, there are... I, I don't know the number, actually. There are a number of special... I'm just going by the leak there. number. And I, I only have this from the press. There are a, a small number, we're in the tens, not the hundreds or the thousands, of special forces there advising the Ukrainians on how to use the weapons we've supplied. And that is not true. Not only true of the UK, that is true of the US and a number of other Western nations. We are not directly involved in war. And it's just as well as we're not, because Russia, which has a defence budget about one-tenth of that, of the whole of NATO, would suffer very, very badly indeed if it got into a direct war with NATO. Why? How do you mean why? Well, because at the, if, at the if there were level, Russian soldiers in Britain, I can only imagine what uh, Britain's reaction would be if Russian special forces were in uh, central London. But uh, clearly, uh, there is uh, nuclear deterrence. So uh, uh, what you just yeah. said doesn't really make any sense to anyone. No, it, of course it does. No, it, uh, on the assumption, which I think is the likely assumption, that any war between NATO and Russia remained at the conventional level, Russia would lose. 
and lose dramatically and quickly. Sorry, I don't understand so, how they would lose because there's a uh, automated nuclear response in Russia. And there are now tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus that have been delivered in the past few days. We're talking about the end of the world here. Well, I hope not. And I, I mean, I deal with a lot of people here in the UK when I'm in the UK. And when I talk to them about the situation, they say to me, Putin is mad, isn't he? And I say to them, no, he's not. The Putin that I knew was a cold, rational calculator of Russian interests, which is why I'm reasonably confident that actually Russia will avoid getting into a direct confrontation with NATO. And secondly, even if that confrontation happens, Putin will finally avoid that turning into a nuclear confrontation. Because in a nuclear confrontation, everybody, including Russia, loses. Clearly. And that is that deterrence, which is why NATO nations are not directly and officially entering the war and why we're hearing voices in Russia saying it's time to uh, act uh, with tactical nuclear weapons to show and remind the world about nuclear deterrence because uh, Britain, Germany, France, the United States are pouring weapons and there are even soldiers on the ground. Well, we have indeed heard a few such voices. You mentioned the article by Sergei Karaganov, whom I know a bit, calling for nuclear strikes against, against NATO, if that's what proves necessary to impress upon us the seriousness of Russia. And we have since seen a spate of articles, including one in Commerçant, saying this is madness. Um, and indeed an earlier article by Dmitry Trenin, a very well-known Russian commentator, saying the reactions that we face from you know, the West, if we get into that sort of territory, would be disastrous for Russia. I think the sensible people on both sides are very clear that crossing the nuclear threshold will be a disaster all the way around. A testament to the multiplicity of views allowed in Russia. People can watch our interview with Karagano from Saturday on, on uh, Rumble. I mentioned earlier the decline of Western Europe economically, Germany in recession clearly, uh, Britain for the first time since 1961 finding itself uh, with uh, a uh, debt higher than its uh, annual uh, GDP and, and food inflation going crazy and Weapons being funneled, uh, public money to BAE Systems, Rolls-Royce, Kinetic, Babcock and Serco, the big defence companies. What happens to Western Europe when, and this is what most of the world does think Russia's going to win because it has more weapons and it has more resources. What happens to Western Europe when Russia wins? Well, as I've said, Russia's not going to win um, because finally Russia is outgunned. Um, if it gets well, into We just talked NATO, about how Russia can't be outgunned. No, well, I'm, you're wrong. As I've said, NATO has 10 times the defence spending of Russia. If, if we get into that, then Russia loses, which is exactly why the Russian government, by Mr Putin, have worked very hard to avoid getting into that, that, that direct confrontation. Um, I, I, at the moment, and we're at a very interesting moment in the war, at the moment, after Russia, Russia's, frankly, failure um, last autumn and, and big being pushed a long, long way back, from its initial, um, initial lines of success, the thing has bogged down completely. Uh, over the early part of this year, the Russian, Russian army took, finally, a rather unimportant um, Ukrainian town, Bakhmut, and it took eight months to do it. The Ukrainians are now, now just taking a string of very small villages back. 
Ambassador, sorry, like I, sorry to interrupt there, but uh, we don't really know what's actually going on in the field. The embedded reporters are from the West and from the other side, you know, we don't exactly know. But what we do know is that some say that Russia wants a long war and is waiting for all this uh, European and American weaponry to come in and then to be destroyed. Uh, that's what I was getting at when what happens to Western Europe, because okay, Russia has okay. put its defences okay. there and it can just wait and destroy them one by one, can't it, over a matter of years and years? Well, yeah, that has costs for Russia as well. You say the, the European economy is indeed having difficulties at the moment, although I don't think they quite match the difficulties of the Russian economy. Russia has economic growth, according to the IMF. Yeah, well, and so and does Germany, Western Europe. Germany doesn't. No, no, we, we in the UK at the moment are having, having problems. We've all got, in particular, post-pandemic problems. Uh, but the reality is that Russia is looking at a loss of its major sources of, of income. Well, oil. Your gas, gas um, supplies... It's in mine. I'm not Russian. But uh, clearly, uh -huh. clearly the Biden administration's destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, causing the biggest eco-disaster, according to Seymour Hirsch, is one thing. But uh, India... China, the Global South countries are more than enough to be able to replace the demand coming from Western Europe. Where's this is true, and Russia will Russia will continue, therefore, we all hope in a way, to sustain its population, but at a significantly lower level. I think Russian GDP per capita has already fallen by 6% or something since the war started. It's a significantly lower level than it would have done uh, on the previous course before all this wretched stuff started, where Russia was integrating increasingly into the Western and global economy and had a reasonable uh, future of economic growth in front of it. It is now cut off from major sources of technology, from major sources of management expertise, and from its most immediate prosperous neighbours in terms of trading partners. That's a tragedy. I, I honestly don't think that's the way, you know, I'm speaking to you from the Middle East. Uh, with, you know, the president of the United Arab Emirates was there at the St. Petersburg Forum. Uh, Russia's the, uh, Russia's the uh, place to go to talk uh, uh, business, arguably. What about the sanctions? What do you think? Because I have, again, from that parliamentary committee, the evidence, and you said sanctions on Russia, you know, it doesn't, there's not really much point in it. Uh, they don't no, really I'm work. Sure that, I'm, not sure that's a precise, I'm not sure that's a precise quotation. I, what, what I, I do not believe... I'm rather hostile, I'll just say, I'm rather hostile to sanctions. They never work, and they certainly never work with regard to Russia. Quite apart yeah. from that, there are things that can be done. That sanctions remains, are having okay. an effect economically, but they're not having any political effect. These are your exact words. That's exactly right, and that remains the case. Um, nevertheless, on the assumption we get past the war, that economic effect blows back into the living standards of ordinary Russians, sadly. Yeah, I mean, we know the effect of US and EU sanctions on Venezuela, perhaps tens of thousands killed ordinary Venezuelans by the sanctions on Venezuela, the impact on Iran, on Syria uh, to this day. Uh, of course, the United States occupies a third of Syria illegally right now, and let alone the Caesar sanctions. But uh, as you yourself said, therefore, the sanctions aren't, you know, going to politically affect Putin, who's very popular clearly in Russia. I mean, do you think Britain is self-sanctioning itself? Britain clearly imports gas. Uh, Ukraine is being paid, Zelensky is being paid by Russia for transit fees for the gas that goes to the EU to keep the lights on. Even now, um, Russia could the switch UK, them off. 
the UK is undoubtedly suffering from some of the economic effects of the war, from very high food prices and from relatively high energy prices. And that's the price that we're, we're paying for, for the continuation of the war, not only us, a lot of other countries as well. Um, I, I mean, the British people have not been asked this question in this form, but if they were, I think their reaction would be, that is a price worth paying to deal effectively with the aggression that Russia has launched. Because they live in an information space without a free press as demanded by law. I, I should add, there are laws in England against talking about the Nazis of Ukraine. Uh, just finally... No, uh, there no are, that's wrong. No, yes, there are laws, no, statutory laws introduced. I, I know full well about that uh, because you cannot broadcast in Britain uh, any television programmes that talk about the Nazis uh, and Nazi movements in Ukraine, let alone there are restrictions on media. But I just want to finish on... There are historic uh, royal relations with Russia... How is it going to be rebuilt? Because eventually, maybe they will rebuild their relations, as you've always wanted, between London and Moscow. Uh, how, how do you think they can ever be uh, put together again after so much British weaponry uh, was sent there to kill Russians, let alone the sanctions aimed at hurting ordinary Russians from Britain? Well, first of all, the war has to end, obviously. Um, and a, a peace agreement has to be worked out which is acceptable to the Ukraine, which means acceptable to its chief Western backers as well, and which Russia also is capable of accepting. Even after that, it's, things are going to remain pretty cold for quite a long time, sadly. But at that point, we can begin to rebuild. We can begin to travel to Russia. I haven't been in Russia now for two and a half years, and I, I'm, I'm missing it acutely. Um, travel and get Russians traveling in the West again. We can resume economic links, although that's going to be hindered by the very strong demand here that Russia pays proportionately for the costs of the damage of the war. We can get people talking to each other. And as I keep on saying, we can look for a way of giving Russia the sort of security guarantees which make sure that we don't get into this sort of confrontation again. Okay, Russia says it'll never pay for uh, any of that uh, rebuilding, obviously. So, Tony Brenton, thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday with a brand new episode. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday. <laughs>